This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. As Ted just mentioned, we're in a series on the Psalter. It's Israel's worship book. It's to help them to worship God in all the circumstances of their life. It's like a field manual. It's how to worship God before and during and after all the ups and downs of your life. This morning, we're going back to the meditation genre, as I was introduced to you two weeks ago. That genre includes Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. It's not a psalm of confidence when life is overwhelming. It's not a psalm of repentance when your sin is overwhelming. It's what you do when your life is steady. It's how to prepare for all those ups and downs that will come next week, next month, and next year. So this morning we're looking at Psalm 119, but obviously not all of Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, and God is making a point. The last three Saturdays in City Bible Reading, in that initiative where we read the scriptures together, this is the bulk of what we have covered. There's 22 equal stanzas of eight verses. Every eight-verse grouping, each stanza, is headed by its own letter in the alphabet. In the Hebrew, it's a magnificent work of art just to behold and look at. Now, when you read some psalms, it feels like it was an outpouring of the heart, as if the writer wrote it in a moment of inspiration. But this is not the case for Psalm 119. It's a tapestry that's been clearly woven together. It's a work of art. It's a work of sheer love and dedication of the author. You could tell he spent long, quiet hours steadily developing this work of art. This psalm marvels at the beauty of God's word, and it celebrates the transformation of the person who meditates on it. To set us up to appreciate the rhetorical force of Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16, I'd like to take us back to our social studies class from middle school. How many of you remember the Oregon Trail or the lesser-known Boozman Trail that went through Wyoming? It's a classic story of immigrant families journeying to their new home, choosing a path to get to their new home and protecting themselves along the way. In July of 1864, Captain Townsend led a wagon train of immigrants from Wisconsin and Illinois and Iowa. And when they got to a certain location, they had to choose their path, the route they're going to take. They decided the Boozman Trail through Wyoming because it was the most clear, shortest, and direct route. There was 150 wagons in all, and there was about 375 men that ran that wagon train with all the corresponding women, children, and oxen. Yet a group of warriors, most likely Cheyenne, repeatedly attacked this wagon train. And just like any classic Western movie, the wagon train would circle up. The men would line the circle of wagons with their rifles, and they put that which they held most dear, their women and children, in the middle. And the men kept that warrior party repeatedly at bay with their rifles. And so with minimal injury and casualties, they arrived at their destination. Verse 9 summarizes our entire passage. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. This is clearly a rhetorical question with an obvious answer, but one the writer felt needed to be spelled out for all of us. The Christian life is a journey. It's a path. It's a way. If we want to flourish and thrive and be whole in this journey, whether as individuals or as a community, there's a few essentials we must circle around and we must protect at all costs. Psalm 119 verses 9 through 16 invites us to walk down that path with purity. But what does that mean? 
our modern ears really don't know what to do with the biblical world of purity. And we do this by guarding it with your word. But how does that functionally look like? Psalm 119 is inviting us to circle around God's word that we might thrive on the journey he has given us. This morning, we're going to unpack that with three ideas. First, the pure way defined. Second, keeping your way pure. Third, the joy of the pure way. Again, the first point, the pure way defined. The word pure is a, in this passage is rather complex. Uh, there's few occurrences in all the scriptures of this word. When we hear the word pure, we think Victorian ideals. Yet the Hebrew word is not as prudish, but actually rather gritty. The first occurrence you see of this word is in Job 15, 14. And the question that's all in all our minds is asked, can anyone really be pure before God? You see, the person in Job asking this question understands that we're all soiled. We're all polluted, meaning we all have mixed motivations. We have conflicted and divided hearts that go in many directions on so many matters. And we realize that we don't even meet our own standards for ourselves, much less God's. So we begin to see that purity begins with an honest assessment of our hearts. Again, another occurrence of this word is in Isaiah. In chapter 1, verse 16, the prophet Isaiah makes an urgent plea to all of God's people. After exposing rather quickly all their missteps, all their sins, all their rebellion, he urges them to purify themselves. Like a similar passage in Proverbs 20, purity is much more than an honest assessment of the heart. But it's taking ownership and responsibility for who we are, recognizing that we're divided and wayward and misaligned and often rebellious and confused. Purity is not about absolutes, but responsibility. Yet Jesus picks up on this theme on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 8, he said this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what is purity of life? The Bible does not use the word the way we think of it. We hear the word purity and we think sinless. The Bible thinks singleness of mind. Freedom from a divided heart. Freedom from falsehood. It was when your public and private persona match up together. It's where you have one integrated life for all to see. It's wholeness. It's where your faith and practice go hand in hand. It's where there's congruency between the rhetoric and the reality of your life. Is where there's compatibility between what you believe and what you do. This is what David wants for you. That you might enjoy all that God has given for you. That day by day you may close that gap between what you say you are and what you really do. So that you again have singleness of mind. Now briefly, look at the congruency, the singleness of mind in David's life. What David resolves to do in this passage, he already does in this passage, is what he prays for. Let me slow that down. David, in verses 15 and 16, resolves to meditate in God's word. Yet, if you look at verses 10, 11, 13, and 14, this is what David already does. So he's resolving to do what he already does. But then if you look at verses, the second half of verse 10, 11, and 12, this is what he prays that God would help him to do. It's an integrated, it's a congruent life that lines up. Back in the mid-90s, I was a young campus minister at a church, and I was mesmerized by my mentor's command of the Bible. Functionally, I asked him one afternoon when I had an individual meeting with him, how do I become like you? And his reply was very Yoda-like. He said, as you are now, so you are later. 
I was like, thanks, Yoda, but what do I do with that? (laughs) And then he expanded for me, thankfully. Meaning, if you're not already doing or working at something now, you should have no expectation that you will do this later. But if you're presently engaged with building something in your life, begging God like crazy to make it a reality, then you should have every reason to believe that you will experience that reality to greater degrees in your life. My mentor nailed me. I have always struggled with pushing important matters to the future. Ah, I'll do that tomorrow. This is really important, but I'll start that next week. And then I never get around to it. It's exactly what I needed to hear. If I want to have a command of the scriptures, I need to start now, today. How pure is your way or path? Where are you troubled by the lack of integration in your life? What do you need to line up in your life? Where is the rhetoric and reality of your life not matching up? What is your plan for singleness of mind that starts today? Now, thankfully, the psalmist tells us how to keep our way pure, by guarding it according to God's word. See, the key driver to your wholeness, the key driver to the singleness of mind, where the reality of your life sings louder than the rhetoric of your life, is what you do with God's word. And now that we've defined the pure way, let's figure out how to guard it. To our second point, keeping your way pure. Again, look at the passage, verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. David could not be more clear. Our singleness of mind is contingent on our meditation of God's word. A few weeks ago, we've learned that meditation on God's word is furiously rational. It's chewing on the truth. It's plotting and planning and applying God's word right here and right now. A hero of mine that's long since passed away gave me an analogy that I want to restate in my own words. Uh, what's meditation? Imagine you're wandering in the woods, not Orlando woods, they're not really woods. Imagine you're in the Rockies or the North Carolina mountains and you're lost in huge roaming hills and big pine trees and it's a fall morning yet a cold, hard winter, well, fall rain hits you and you're shivering, you're chilled to the bone and you come across a friendly campsite where there's a roaring fire. Well, how long would you stand by the fire until you're warm and dry and re-energized for your journey back home? Followers of Jesus wake up each morning with very cold hearts, full of unbelief in the beauty of the goodness and the the greatness and the glory of the gospel. We, We don't wake up believing Jesus is enough to satisfy all the woes of our life, We wake up doubting his love and his faithfulness to us each and every morning. And the cold, hard, driving rain of this world has us quite chilled. The skepticisms and the fears and the doubts and the apathy and the sleepiness that's around us begins to affect us as well. Yet the fall of Jesus deliberately seeks out the gospel for him in the Bible. And he stands by the fire of meditation of God's word until he's warmed and energized for the chores of head. You see in this analogy or story, there's three movements of meditation in this passage this morning. And I want us to see it so that we might keep our way pure. First, you take responsibility for your cold heart. Secondly, you deliberately walk towards the fire of the gospel. And third, you stay there and you meditate until it warms you up 
First, you take responsibility for your cold heart. Look at verse 10. Let me not wander from your commandments. Wander could easily be translated stray. David makes no excuses in this psalm. We choose to wander. Our missteps and sins are never accidental but calculated because they originate from our hearts. The psalmist, who does have a congruent, congruent and whole heart, knows that any minute he could wander. You see, he's aware with the sin within. He dreads wandering because he's familiar with the pathways that lead him down the wrong road. He knows how quick he is to forget God's love and grace. He knows how he's divided. He knows how easy it is for him to yet rest on yesterday's success and fumes. And he knows how easy it is to rationalize or justify any course of action. So he takes responsibilities for his heart. He begs God to stop him. Think about that for a second. Do you dread wandering? It's an indicator that you're seeking God. Are you taking responsibility for your cold heart each and every morning? Do you understand the subtle and blatant ways that you stray each and every day? And do you live with urgency of someone who is wet and cold and desperately needs a fire? The second movement of meditation we see is you deliberately walk towards the fire of the gospel. Look at verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Uh, This means integrity of heart, full commitment. This is a deliberate action towards God. Now, this type of living is not a foreign activity to us. No one has to tell me or you to check your email 10 times a day. If you have a Facebook account or Pinterest or whatever, no one has to tell you to check it two to three times a day. If you're a guy, no one has to tell you to watch SportsCenter morning and evening. If you're a parent, no one tells you to obsess over your children. If you're a professional, no one has to tell you to work 10 extra hours. You're already fully committed. You're 100% invested. The psalmist is inviting you to run and get to God's word in that manner. Then each and every day, you go running into God's word looking for the gospel, looking for God's grace and love for you, looking for the story of redemption where God has purchased you out of slavery and sin and death and gives you everything, looking to connect and commune to his greatness and his glory and his love, urgently, proactively, deliberately seeking him in his word each and every day. So, how invested and committed are you to seeking out the gospel for you each and every day? How can you take advantage of the community, people that's around you or in your community group to help you to walk more deliberately in the gospel? And primarily, how are you taking advantage of our CBR initiative to make that a reality? The third movement meditation we see in this passage is you stay there and meditate until it warms you up. Look at verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What David is saying here is you need to bury God's word deep within you. It's taking the gospel to the most inner places, most innermost places of your heart. There it can shape your thinking and decision making in life. It's a place so deep that it's not easily removed. Now why? Well, David tells us why in verse 11, that I might not sin against you. Now, this is a profound truth in the scriptures. The best remedy for sin is meditation of the gospel. David understands that if you stand by the warm fires of the gospel until it heats you up, it is the greatest remedy against your heart rebelling against God. Now, the psalmist invites us to stew on God's word. Again, look at verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts. 
Meditation is active pondering. It's like a cow chewing her cud for hours, just slowly wearing it down. This word meditate can be better translated muttering to yourself. It's, you're so engrossed with something, it just seeps out of you. Now again, stewing on something is not a foreign activity to us. Think about all the hurts and wounds that have been inflicted upon us and every compliment and encouragement that's been given to us. Think about how deep they go. Think about how we love to replay them. Seriously, everyone in this room has been wounded or betrayed by someone in the last month. Think about how we just replay it over and over and how it gets us so darn worked up and tearful. You know, no one has to tell us to replay it. We just play the button and it goes on and on and on. Now think about how hungry we are for encouragement and identity and someone gives us that compliment. Oh, how we love to recount it. How we love to share with others and let it go deep within. I think stewing on the gospel may be the hardest step for most of us in this room. Because it's investing time to sit in God's word and actively ponder it until it goes so deep that it begins to warm us up from the inside out. And my experience for myself and for most of you is this is the hardest part of doing city Bible reading. This is much harder than checking it off because you did it. I love opening up my journal and filling up the little boxes. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'd love to tell you. And I love looking at the questions in the end, thinking about people to talk about it with. But if I'm honest with you, I have a hard time slowing down and sitting still and just warming up by the fires of God's love for me. I want fast results, but rarely am I willing to invest the time and energy and the reorientation of my life to stew on God's word. Now, one of the best pictures I've ever seen in meditation is a recent feature-length documentary called Restrepo. It follows a platoon in the Korogal Valley of Afghanistan. If you're not familiar with that region like I wasn't, I'll just give you a sentence on this. This valley was the strategic location for the Taliban and Al-Qaeda to hold because through this valley, it could supply and support its entire operation in the entire country. This was the most dangerous posting in the U.S. military, and at the time, it was the most deadliest place on earth. The army had an outpost about halfway down the valley, and they took extremely heavy fire each and every day. At some point, the captain in charge of that fire base is like, I had enough of this. We're going to die here. And so he pointed to the highest hilltop in the valley and said, we need to commandeer that hill spot. And if we can take that mountaintop, we can control the entire valley. So that night, 15 men snuck up in the dark of night and started digging shallow trenches. By dawn, they took heavy machine gun fire all day long. And in those brief moments it stopped, they would dig again, trying to dig more deeper shallow trenches. And this repeated daily. Now, what they discovered on that hilltop is it was not made of dirt, but it was made of rock. It was one big rock. So they couldn't make sandbags, they had to make rock bags. And the only thing that would dig into that rock face was a pickaxe. That was the only tool that worked. So imagine this. They broke rock together in 100 degree weather, wearing full body armor, taking consistent machine gun fire all day long. Most days they would dig lying down the ground for hours. But rock by rock, they would create bags of rock. And those bags of rock started stacking up and created walls of rock. And those walls of rock turn into a fortress. In one month, they moved 10 tons of rock by hand, laying down under consistent machine gun fire. Once this new fire base was stable and secure, they began to control the valley by day. 
and pushed back Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Now, this documentary gives us a very gritty plan to emulate. Your heart is very much like the Corrigan Valley. It's an extremely dangerous place. Now think about it. If we're honest with any of ourselves, and with ourselves or anyone else, we're full of temptation and rationalization and confusion and division and fear. Uh, just like those Marines, well, actually I should say Rangers, they took enemy fire all day long. There's doubts and questions and skepticism that plague us as well. And if you're going to get anywhere, you've got to build a fire base around the deepest part of your heart, upon the firm foundation himself, Jesus. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's take up residence in you. Jesus is your firm foundation, that rock which you can build upon. And you must pick up your pickaxe and daily dig into God's word, mining for gospel promises and his love for us. You see, those promises, we start mining for it, start stacking up and turning into bags of God's saving love in our lives. And those bags of careful mining turn into walls. And in no time, you have a fortress of God's word around your heart. And in no time, you're guarding your heart according to God's word. What would happen if you did this? How would your heart radically change if you warmed your heart around the fires of the gospel by digging into the depths of God's word each and every day. You've seen the pure way to find. We've seen how the, the Psalms give us tools for keeping your way pure. Now we can experience the joy of the pure way, the third point, the joy of the pure way. And what happens to you when you meditate on God's word? Thankfully, David describes it for us in this psalm. First, you cannot forget it. Verse 16, I will not forget your word. The Holy Spirit uses the ammunition of you studying God's word to bombard you with it. It's his job to counsel you with God's word, to remind you of it, to teach you it, to prod you with it. But he loves to take the words you're meditating on and give it to you throughout the day. Secondly, you cannot contain it. Look at verse 13. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Your lips become, you become the lips of God's mouth. What comes into you will always come out. What gets into the deepest part of your heart will rule you. The Bible shows us that your heart is finite, and if you fill it up with God's word and love for you, it will flow out. But not only can you not forget it, not only can you not contain it, you cannot be diverted from it. Verse 15, I'll meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Your attention will be on God's word like a bridegroom when he sees his bride walking down the aisle. You won't be able to take your eyes off of her. Like when your child enters the world, you can't take your eyes off of him or her. It's like your little heart's walking around in front of you. The psalmist is inviting us to have that intimate of a relationship with God's word and his ways. Fourthly, you cannot curb it. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much in all riches I will delight in your statues. I will not forget your word. You will experience God's joy. Feelings do matter, and God means to fill you with his delight. Now, I've rarely seen this kind of joy and delight in a human being, but there's a story I must tell you because it's the most beautiful pictures I know. I had a good friend in college who experienced deep tragedy in his childhood. You see, on his 16th birthday, he could drive. He, his father, and his older brother went off to the hardware store to get stuff for that fix-it-up Saturday they were having. On the way back, because he was 16 and has his license, his father said, hey, why don't you take the wheel? So he did. And so they drove off together, the older brother in the middle, the father on the side. 
And something happened on the road, and the combustion of what happened, he wrecked the car. <clears throat> when the father gained his senses, he dragged both sons out of the horrific accident, and he began to realize that his eldest son was dying. So he held the father, reached down, pulled him up on his lap, and pulled him close to himself. And he told his son, I love you. I will see you soon. <laughs> You're graduating first. You get to experience Jesus now and enjoy him forever. And we can't wait to see you there. And within minutes, his son passed away and he stood there just weeping, holding on to his son. And when his son was dead, he, he looked over and he saw another son that was beside himself. He immediately ran over to his son and grabbed him and held him close and kissed his neck and whispered in his arms, I love you so much. I cannot tell you how much I cherish you. You are my son and I'm so proud of you. I forgive you for what's happened. Your brother forgives you. We love you. And we want you to rest in that love. Now every time my friend told me that story, and he told it to me often. I could see deep pain wash over him because he killed his eldest brother. But what blew me away every time he told that story is I would see at some point joy wash over him, peace wash over him. And it never made sense to me until I got it. He had joy because his father loves him. He has joy because his father forgave him. He has joy because God's grace and God's love is sufficient for what he has done. You know, our story is not that different from my friend. Our sin and rebellion should have wrecked our lives and killed us. And Jesus, our elder brother, he didn't accidentally die, but he chose to die on our behalf. You see, our sin was such an obstacle to us experiencing God's delight. Jesus knew he had to die on our behalf. And the Father did, did not weep over Jesus, but on the cross cursed him and forsook him. Why? Because we needed righteousness to be with him. And so the Father took all the sin that, that we deserve condemnation for, and he placed it on Jesus, and he cursed Jesus, and he crushed Jesus, and he killed Jesus. And in its place, he gave us, all of Jesus' righteousness, beauty, significance, aroma, that our Father might enjoy us. And so the Father, he's killed a son to bring us close to us in his arm and whisper, I love you so much. I could not love you anymore. I've made you a new creation. I've dressed you in the robes of righteousness. You're going to see your older brother soon. He's not here right now. But one day, you're going to reign and rule with him. You're going to have so much fun in the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be so much joy, this world will fail in comparison. I'm never going to let you go. You're mine, and don't you forget it. Yeah, your older brother's dead, but he died to make you new. You see, when we meditate in the gospel, we get to relive the death of our Savior and elder brother, Jesus. As a Christian, we get to rejoice that he paid for all of our sin. He paid the debt that we might have forgiveness. We get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus where he conquered sin and death and he ascended to the heavenly throne. We get to celebrate the beauty of our salvation that Jesus right now, our elder brother, our Lord, our King, is sitting on a throne fully fixated on us. 
loving us, watching over us, enjoying us, perfecting us. Now, what would happen when you allow this reality to daily take your heart? What happens is you bless God. This is the fifth and ultimate joy of the pure way. Look at verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. This phrase is unique to the Psalms. This is not in third person. This is not a call to worship. This is the only time in the whole Psalter Psalter, where God is addressed in the second person. This passage doesn't say, blessed be the Lord. It says, blessed are you, O Lord. Think about this. When you're intoxicated with your Father in heaven and blessing him, what are you? You're single-minded, you're pure, you're meditating on God's word, you're congruent, you're well-established in God's love, and the reality of your life is singing louder than your rhetoric. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I stand as a man whose rhetoric and his reality do not line up. And Father, we're a people that long to be single-minded and be devoted to you. And so, Father, we beg you to be, help us to be a people that guards our path according to your word. Help us day and night to feast on your word. Help us to reorient our lives around sitting still in your word and meditating and staying there until you warm us up by the beauty of the gospel. Father, in that, help us to see how much you love us. Whisper to us through your word your love, your satisfaction for us in Christ, that we might rise up and bless you. We pray this in your blessed name, Lord Jesus.